Thank you for listening to the following film's podcast. Today I'm joined by cinematographer Zach Kupperstein. I had him on the show today to talk about his work on the film Barbarian. Uh, Just a bit of fair warning, this is a spoiler-filled conversation. So if you haven't seen the film Barbarian, it has really wonderful reviews. It's a big box office hit. So I highly recommend if you haven't seen the film, press stop right now. Go check out the film and listen to this later because we definitely uh, ruin the film. And one of the sheer pleasures of watching this film is allowing it to reveal itself. Don't watch a trailer. Just go watch the movie. It's it's definitely worth your time. I had a great time chatting with Zach, and I hope you enjoy the show. Thanks. Hey, Chris. Hey, Zach. How are you today? Great. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this, man. I really appreciate it. I'm sorry about the push. Thank you for uh, accommodating that. (laughs) No no worries. No worries. It gave me a little bit of time to go over a few things. So I appreciated the uh, extra time in the day. Congratulations on the film, the top at the box office. This is literally, this made me so happy to be, to walking, to walk out of that theater and just see something that was this, pardon the way, I mean, this is an absolute compliment, something that was this fucking weird and yeah. wonderful and to see that top the box office i would never have expected that so congratulations yeah, me man me neither i was blown away and totally like i don't know my mind is blown i'm still like <laughs> bewildered <laughs> but it's uh it's been a fun ride so thank you what was the i mean there's so many parts of this to to get into but the the film looks fantastic first and foremost just like right from the jump when the combination of the camera movement with sound and performance in that opening shot it's all coming together and it feels like there's really just this movie is firing on all cylinders at all time and i feel like you're deeply connected in the camera work with performance and you're supporting performance while doing something really interesting can you talk a little bit about uh the look of the film and what was uh driving some of these really interesting shots you came up with yeah i mean uh, that opening shot was definitely all zach the director uh he he came up with that i think he had that he's had that in his head since he wrote the script and how do we settle on the look of the film? The um, Basically, the film kind of breaks down into two parts. Uh, there are many parts, but essentially it's the upstairs and the downstairs look. And uh, upstairs for us is David Fincher and downstairs for us is Sam Raimi. And uh, that's that means essentially motivated camera moves only upstairs and trying to work with the blocking and trying as much as possible for it to feel unnoticed um, and, and just get you right into the into the movie and then uh and build the suspense and there were many moments that zach pointed out in uh in some fincher stuff where it's like just a shot of a doorknob and it's like that looks great okay like that builds the suspense so simple um but really uh effective and and just takes you along for the ride so uh and then downstairs uh you know zach is a huge Raimi fan uh, and he showed me drag me to hell which i hadn't seen before and oh it's wonderful lost. yeah it's a wild movie and um i had so much fun watching it and was like oh this is like we're gonna go nuts and i love that so uh so we we just kind of once the once the characters are downstairs it's all like big fast camera moves um trying to amp up the the humor of it and um and and exaggerate the everything about it uh from the wide lenses the povs and the uh and just fast moves um that was sort of the the gist of the downstairs um and then lighting wise i think it was um and tonally it was you know broken up into multiple parts as well where the first third of the movie it's really about 
believing that Keith is the bad guy. And uh, I don't know. I don't want to spoil anything for your I, audience. I, but. I think, okay, I'm just going to go ahead and throw this out there because I don't know how to talk about this movie without only without spoiling because without only talking about the first 10 minutes of the movie, really. Um, so if you haven't watched the film yet, just do yourself a favor. If you're listening to this podcast, you're the type of person that would enjoy this film. So go watch it. And then I think we can just have this will be a spoiler filled conversation from here on okay good good to have the freedom to just talk about yeah. the movie. So, um yeah so the, the the first third of the movie building up uh to to keep's death um we we wanted the audience to obviously think that he's the bad guy um but there's sort of an automatic thing that the audience is doing and if we were to uh to lean into that and play him as like really evil seeming or whatever the audience might start to second guess the fact that they that they think he's a bad guy so instead we kind of did a double uh what's it called a reverse psychology thing on them mm -hmm. uh and by playing him as the good guy so that they think that we're trying to hide the fact that he's the bad guy and of course he is the good guy in the end so uh so i i think that that worked really well. And Zach did a really great job of constantly reminding me of that and reminding everybody of that through uh, production design, the photography and and through the color grade. Um, I, I was and in the music and the sound design as well, um, which I hadn't seen until recently. Um, but yeah, really, you just get sucked into it. And and you're like, man, he must be so evil. Like, there's no way that they're gonna let him be that, you know, nice seeming or warm and inviting if he's not the if he's not the bad guy well so. it's it's it plays on both levels at the same time where what you you can view this performance as either something that is there's a nervous energy and it's either because he's a genuinely sweet kind guy that just feels uncomfortable because he's in the presence the presence of this woman that he wasn't expecting to see that he has a little bit of a crush on or he there's nefarious motives it works either way when you're looking at it and when you go back and rewatch it it's all the things that you're projecting into it that are just come out and that it was played straight the entire time it's just you and your baggage that you're bringing to the film is what causes that first act to be so effective exactly yeah and then when we get into the uh uh into the basement um and things really just start to flip on their heads it's uh it's very much about embracing the darkness and uh and working with the with the flashlight to get as many gags out of it as we could from the uh you know fl flickering flashlight to working with just the edge of what you can see and uh and all of that i think uh the flashlight or the iPhone light really became, you know, their own characters in the film. And uh, for me, that was a challenge because I was like, well, <laughs> that's the only light I have to work with um, and kind of had to plan on that. Uh, so I shot with the Sony Venice and had never worked with it before, but uh, it does great in high ISOs. And I tested a lot of that with my colorist, Sam Daly, and uh, just made sure that I could work in pretty much pitch black uh, and still get something useful out of it. And then a lot of it came down to directing the actors where to point the flashlight, how to hold it. They they did a lot of uh, bouncing off of the tunnel walls. Yeah. And then uh, a gaffer, uh, whose nickname was Zeiss, his name is Zeiss, um, <laughs> which I guess in Bulgarian is a is a uh, a nickname for somebody who has glasses, kind of like an endearing way of somebody <laughs> calling for calling somebody four eyes. Um, but uh, he was such a sweetheart, and he uh, had this idea to take like a an LED uh, circular light, like a little LED panel. And mm -hmm. he built like um, a top hat on it with a cap that he would stand behind the camera with 
and uh, bounce off the the walls and aim depending on uh, which way the actors pointed the flashlight. And then when they turn away from the camera, he would cover it very quickly so that it didn't have any ambience uh, on the backs of their heads. And it worked beautifully. And there was a, a good sort of, we had a maybe a signaling system at some point um, while we're shooting or, or he would see a rehearsal and then start to anticipate and figure out, you know, the timing of, of his lighting moves. Um, and then we also tested uh, what if we put LED strips, you know, throughout the, the tunnel or like just a, a faint backlight or something. And it all looked really fake. So um, it was better to just stick with the flashlight and the phone. And then the flashlight itself, the the one that's uh, the more prop looking flashlight, um, we found this uh, this other LED sort of puck light. Um, I think it's called the Ape Lab Coin. Um, that was kind of the right size, and our department put it into the into the flashlight, and then we could remote control it and dial dial in how bright it was for each shot, um, and get that sort of flicker on demand instead of having to rely on like a battery gag or something. Um, so uh, a lot of things to kind of figure out once we got into the basement and downstairs and um, and then there's of course the uh, the the flashback in the 80s sequence um, which was fully inspired by one movie called Angst um, which is an Austrian movie from uh, the 80s and uh, Zach showed me that early on in prep and it's wild and it's like it's I mean the story's kind of dumb it's just about like a serial killer who gets out of prison and goes on a rampage. Mm -hmm. uh, but the uh, the photography is outrageous, and it's all like super wide lenses, super close. Lots of these just like like where you're like steady cam following stuff. Is that where the idea? There's that yeah, that study where you would almost be like pinned to his back, and you'd have these moments where the arms would look just so long, like you were staring down you know the barrel, and it was just this crazy point of view that you would have in certain shots here that just gave you this really almost dizzying feel at times, and I really noticed it in that sequence. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's all taken from angst. And okay. I think, it, I don't know when exactly the Snorri cam was invented, but they definitely used it on that movie. And there are lots of shots where the camera's attached to, uh, to the actor in that. And we tried a little bit of that and ended up not really coming up with a rig that made sense for it. And it kind of made more sense to just be tracking with them with the Steadicam. Um, <clears throat> but uh, but that was definitely the inspiration for it. And there's also these like cool overhead floating shots that they do that we didn't really take from, but it was all really inspiring and just like, let's do that for all sequence. Why not? Um, felt crazy. So there, there was another moment that I think is really important. It's really key is when you transition from the, you know, kind of the upstairs downstairs. And when we first see the, um, upstairs world again and we go to justin long's point of view and it has this scene that almost reminds me of the a moment in true romance the tony scott thing where the guys the um studio guy is driving talking to bronson pincho on the phone it's in this convertible and that whole moment whatever that song is that he's singing in this film i i just wanted yeah, to I mean, sing along with it i fell in love with the guy right away and then hated myself for falling in love with him and yeah. only justin long could pull off being because he he is the barbarian of the film really Absolutely. in the end and but i just uh, you instantly want to like this guy and then everything in the movie is telling you he's an asshole he's a piece of shit and it takes a while i think to completely buy into that idea yeah that's exactly it and and justin is so perfect for it and such a delight to work with like oh my god we had so much fun on set he was uh he was constantly trying to pick up uh bulgarian phrases and learn them in between his lines so he would like finish a take and then turn and like say something in bulgarian or like mutter it to himself and say it over and over again and check with the crew and be like did i get that right is it more like this or like this and then you go back into character and yeah. do the scene and i was just like how are you doing that <laughs> but, 
he's hilarious and just uh, a blast to be around. So, and recreating Detroit and Bulgaria, I was shocked by that when because when I saw the film, I didn't pick up on that. Most of the time, when you're shooting in. You know, if you're in these former Soviet bloc countries, you're in Eastern, Eastern Europe or wherever, and it's supposed to be, you know, the Appalachian Trail or something like that. It, it's close, but there's always something that feels a little bit off. I had no idea until because awesome. I went in this as blind as possible. It was in the press notes that I had for it, but I knew I wanted to see this and I just went in as blind as possible. And so that's when I found this out. It was in prep for the interview and I was shocked by that. You guys really nailed that. Awesome. Well, I'm so glad to hear that. I had no idea. And uh, and hopefully the only giveaway is the, all the Bulgarian names that roll in the credits at the end. <laughs> <laughs> I, I saw it in, in the theater for the first time recently and it, I was like, oh, wow, that's <laughs> all the Ivanovs and Petrovs and, you know, <laughs> and they're all wonderful people. And I was like, oh, and that guy and that friend, you know, um, but uh, but yeah, the um, uh, to accomplish that, we uh, I guess at the, at the onset, um, it was pitched to us that there's this studio there that has a, a back lot that they call America Town. And it's like <laughs> it's like one block that has some suburban looking houses on it. They also have a New York City street. Oh, I was going to love it if you said we didn't have to change a thing. That's what they saw America was like. And it was just perfect. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, unfortunately, that was not it, it, once you kind of dug into it, it looked great at first. I was like, wow, okay, like that seems like a no-brainer. It looks good. But then you kind of dig into it and you see like, ah, oh, we can only look, you know, maybe 180 degrees. Mm. And if we flip around this way, you have to you can't see that. We'd have to like do a green screen extension of a set or something like that. Um, and the houses we didn't have a lot of control over. It just wasn't in the cards for us to like rebuild things or paint things or do what we really needed to do. So uh our line producer, Yvonne, who's uh so well connected and in Sophia and just like the, a funny side story we were uh when we were flying into bulgaria uh i think or maybe one of yeah, our producer flying in he was joining us a couple weeks later he picked up like the bulgaria magazine or whatever it is on the airline uh that's like in the seat back and ivan is on the cover of the magazine on the airline just like we make tvs here or whatever <laughs> he's the guy so um He's got all the connections and knows everybody. And he was just like, we should do this outside the studio. And uh, and he was like, we should go. Find, there's this farm that they found. They looked around for uh, for some fields or just kind of empty space to do it. And he found this farm that's a, an agricultural uh, laboratory. So they study tomatoes. And uh, they've got a um, just sort of a paved road thing in the middle of it and uh and like sort of crops around in empty fields on one side and there was this brick building on the other side and zach and i were like "Ooh, that brick building is going to be a problem um but we talked with rossi our, our production designer and uh she was uh pretty convinced that she could cover it effectively with uh with houses and kind of fill the gaps um and it would be more cost effective and more flexible to to just build the whole set from scratch uh on this field so so we get there on day one uh, and, uh, and we're kind of talking through where the houses are going to go, where the facades are going to go. And, um, and they had already kind of put down some of the frames. We were a little worried. Cause I was like, we should make sure that we're there when they, you know, stake things out, but they were constantly building ahead of us. There just wasn't enough time to, to do anything. So, or to not do anything. So they, uh, so we get there, we're looking around and it seems like, okay, this, this could work for this house and we'll have this be the hero house. And if we look in this direction, we're good. And we get a, a fence here, whatever. We, and then we're starting to talk about the final scene of the movie. And in the script, it was written to be in a church and on the roof of a church. Um, 
And we're kind of standing there looking down the street, trying to figure out where is the church going to go? How are we going to build this church? How big is it? What is going to, this is like the climax of the movie. How is this going to make sense? And in the direction we're looking, I see this water tower silo thing. And I'm like, can we just rewrite it and make it a silo? It looks like it's got stairs that go up the side and a precarious roof. Like, can we do that? And as soon as I said it, I was like, oh no, everybody's going to hate me. That was such a stupid thing to say. And Zach is like, no, that's great. Let's do that. That thing's perfect. I'm like, oh, awesome. Well done. I'm going to like this guy. So, <laughs> so uh, you know, I, I run over there, climb up the, the rickety, uh, rusty stairs. And the AD is like, whoa, 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 we got to be careful of that. Um, and, uh, and I get on the roof and I'm like, okay, it seems solid. It's a little sketchy. I'm a little afraid of heights, but um, it seems like it's going to work. So, they ended up uh, hiring an engineering team and like reinforcing the stairs. And we use the practical stairs and obviously the, the silo itself in the background. Um, but uh, the top of the silo was deemed not okay for the actors to go on. Uh, so they had the art department had to rebuild the entire top of the silo as a, as a set piece in the studio. Um, and then it was a question of how, what, what's the background going to be like if we're just on top of a silo. Uh, and everybody was kind of pushing for green screen and it was like, yeah, we'll do green screen and it'll be easy. And then we'll just, you know, get this green screen studio and our problem. And I was like, ah, green screen is not going to be good. It's just not going to look good. It's going to, the green light's going to spill everywhere. We're going to it's fighting. We're going to be fighting it all the time. And uh, it's just going to be a pain. So um, I was talking with, with a few people and the gaffer had, again, Zeiss had a great idea. And he was like, let's just uh, take some black fabric, poke some holes in the back and and light it up from behind and it'll look like distant city lights. <laughs> I was like, all right, let's try it out. So we get to our, our test day and we did it on a four by and, and tested it out. It looked great. And we're like, okay, like that seems like it's going to work. Now what? And then, you know, a few weeks go by, we're in production and then they're like, okay, how are we going to, uh, how much black fabric do we need? How big is this set going to be? Et cetera, et cetera. And uh we got you know 270 degrees of black fabric and all of it you know raised up to the um up to the ceiling and then the line producer asked me he goes uh how high should the horizon be like where where's the horizon going to be relative to the thing i'm like oh it's a really good question i don't, I don't know <laughs> Figure that out. so i go back to our our set i climb up on top of the silo and i downloaded a uh, a sextant app on my phone and uh, do you know what a sextant is? Before I... no, 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 I do not. Oh, it's like um, a, an, an astronomy tool to measure the angle of what you're looking at. Wow. Okay. Oh, so, uh, it was used in like uh, navigating ships uh, forever, so they could like uh, pinpoint where the stars are and where they are. They could. It's kind of how they figure out uh, latitude. Okay. Um, so, uh, so I downloaded an app that does that. And I go climb on top of this thing and I'm like, okay, it's, I don't know how high it's going to be, what angle it'll be at. And I look and I'm like, oh, zero degrees. Okay, interesting. And then I kind of like get down a little lower. I check again, zero degrees. Okay. And I go back down to the ground, check zero degrees. And I'm like, oh, right. The horizon, it's always at zero degrees. Like, <laughs> uh, but uh, <laughs> it took me going there to like test it and realize that. And I was like, well, what does that mean? That means that wherever the camera is, because it's from your perspective. So wherever the camera is, the horizon has to be at the same height as the camera or appear to be zero degrees relative to the camera. So then I realized, oh, the horizon can't just be a height. It needs to be able to move. Yeah. To shot. Of course. <laughs> but wow. I had to break that news to the line producer. I'm like, we need the whole thing on chain motors and it, we need to be able to adjust it for every shot. Um, and he was like, all right, I guess that's the thing. So. <laughs> 
So they put that together, and then uh, and then on the day we got the got the camera up on the uh, on top of the silo, and I took a laser and a level and aimed it at the uh, you know got it perfectly level with the camera and found the spot, and we adjusted the horizon to the laser pointer. And as soon as it hit zero degrees, it clicked in. It was like, wow, this this looks real now, and it didn't before that. There's something that's like, oh, it's kind of off, um, and it just suddenly made it made it real. So. Um, that and then like some some clever uh, gelling of lights behind the the backdrop to like get different areas of the city and like little uh, bits of red gel to be like oh that's like a a tower light a radio tower light or whatever um, and lines that were like oh here's the road you know this might be a highway of of lights um, and all that kind of together really sells it so none of that is green screen at all I I think it's totally believable I, I, I agree I never would have known never would have known honestly. <laughs> I, I, I the uh, the falling off the edge that had to be well, uh, yeah I, I assumed as much there <laughs> yeah but that that whole moment that whole ending sequence is so tonally so spot on perfect that there I was watching the film with my wife and after that moment she you know kind of the immediate turn to each other what did you think and I'm in love with this this is the Evil Dead 2 scratch itch that I've had since I was 12 years old had been thoroughly scratched and I just felt wonderful and my right. wife's like I don't know she's like I've, I I, I don't know if I love this or if I hate it I have no clue that's good that's really good that it's giving that big of a reaction she came around to it but it was yeah. something it took a minute and I I have a 12 year old son now and that uh, kind of dawned on me in that moment that I, I don't want to be the one that says hey check this out but I kind of want to leave the Blu-ray out somewhere in the house so that hopefully he'll uh, find it and put it on himself. So I don't want to be a that parent that's right. guiding him there. But I do want I seeing stuff like this at that age. I think that's like when you're a little bit too young for it, it can leave those marks on you for life. And yeah, kind of, that's like right on the edge. Like oh, maybe he shouldn't see that, but maybe maybe he could. He, I don't know. He he saw he saw it and he liked that and he oh, did cool. that on his own. So. I mean, this would be a natural follow-up for him with that, I think. So, so yeah, I, I think I think it might make sense. But there, there's elements in it. It's those. It's the. There's also at this film center, unlike Evil Dead Two. There's actually this is a highly moral film. There's a moral center here, and there's a takeaway. It's actually this is incredibly prescient right now. This is something that I think it's dealing with, um, with sexual abuse, with trauma, these things in a way that is really uh, it's really inventive really clever and i think that it's something that handles it in a way that's at an arm's length that makes it not come across as preachy but it's something that clearly has a message in it and the to me the moral of the story is listen to women even in the very beginning act one if you're not you, you all you had to do is listen to the woman and you would have been okay yeah, in that moment she says she's right <laughs> yeah 100 and it feels like that was the message of the movie to me and i feel like that's something that as a dad, I want my son to have that message. So maybe I could throw him down into this movie and it wouldn't be so bad. Yeah, yeah that could be good. I, and I think it's interesting to think of the the mother as the as the victim, as a victim in some ways. Oh, as well. absolutely. In a, in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, she had, because I think that her, she's genuinely caring and compassionate until she sees aggression. And then there's that reaction. And especially it seems like it's more, there's some less tolerance with male aggression, which the only male experience that she's had, seeing what she's seen, can you blame her for yeah. having that reaction to it? So no, I, I completely see her as a victim in this. I mean, if I, how many generations deep are we with her? I'm not okay. That's kind of ambiguous. Okay, <laughs> yeah. 
Okay. Because, <laughs> yeah, this is like the copy of the copy of the copy idea where we're that deep into it. So, so disconnected from any sense of humanity at that point that you couldn't help but be that. So there, I think she's a sympathetic character in uh, the end. And but. so much of that is is built into Zach's brilliant script, and and that's why I was so obsessed with wanting to do this movie. And like, I don't know, it was, it was such an easy read, and I was like, "Yep, <laughs> this is brilliant. I, I got to be a part of that." Well, uh, I can't believe that people. I know this isn't a big budget movie by any stretch of the imagination, but it's also it's not a micro budget film. And normally, you only see stuff like this on a really really small level, where it's a couple guys doing something on a weekend using, you know, an HD camera, maybe might even be on a cell phone and they're trying to just get away with it, putting together. It would have been something they were buying ends of film stock to put it together. Yeah. Today's episode of the following films podcast is brought to you by Bookman's. So earlier today, when I went into Bookman's, I was thinking about the conversation I was having earlier today and I just wanted to check out a movie that maybe was a genre film, but had a little bit more on its mind. Something that was a horror film, maybe something that had a political or social commentary underneath it. And when I walked into Bookman's, I happened to come across the 4K edition of Candyman, uh, the one that Scream Factory put out earlier this year, and it's a phenomenal set. I'm really looking forward to watching it tonight. But today I'm joined by my son, Jacob, who had some questions about Candyman, the movie, when he was looking at uh, the Blu-ray cover, he had some questions. So let's kind of go through those right now. So Jacob, come here. Yes. Uh, what is your first question about this Candyman? Um, um, what what happens if you say your his name five times? That's a that's a good question because on the bottom of the Blu-ray case it says we dare you to say his name five times. So if you look in a mirror in the movie and you say Candyman five times, Candyman will appear. He'll come there. And you'll kill. Oh, well, wow. Um, I, I didn't tell you that, but yeah, that, that's that's what would happen. Because this is make-believe. It's not a real thing that happens. This is just a story. It's just pretend. Good, good, good. So Candyman shows up in the room and then lights out. So do you have any other questions about the uh, the Blu-ray case here that you're looking at? Uh, why is there a bee right there? Okay, that's a good question. So the bee is there because Candyman... Uh, well, what do you think? Well, if you had to... If you were going to watch this movie, if you had to think, why would there be a bee there? What do you think is going on in this picture? I think a, pin, um, a bee affected him. That's right. He, he was bitten by bees. That's right. Yep. That, that's that's why there's a bee there, because the candy man was bitten by bees. And and means, so, means, means he would kill the bees that did that? Well, no, not necessarily. But, so do you have any other questions about this on here? Why is he in the eye? Oh, that's Candyman. That's just a reflection. So this is this eyeball right here. It represents there's a woman who's looking in the mirror, and then she can see Candyman in the mirror also. So I think that's what that's trying to portray. So I have a question for you about this movie. Do you think this is a movie that a kid should watch? No. Is this a movie that you ever think you'll watch? When you're a grown-up, do you ever want to see Candyman? Yes. When you're a grown-up? Okay, cool. As long as it's not too horrifying. It's not that bad. It's a lot of fun. Mom loves this movie. I love this movie, so we're going to probably watch this later tonight. How, wait, but how do you know all this stuff? How do I know all this about it? Well, because I like movies a lot, and that's why I have a movie podcast, so that I can talk about movies. And why 
want to actually know all about what's in this movie. Because I've seen it a bunch of times. Oh, um, the classic one, like part one? Yeah, well, there's actually, there's four Candyman movies. There's uh, three that star Tony Todd, who's that guy right there. He's actually, Tony Todd is a really well-respected genre actor. I like him a lot. In fact, we're connected on Twitter and we end up talking about music a lot. So really nice guy. He's not scary at all, the guy who plays Candyman in real life. And then there was a remake that was done, or I guess it's kind of a sequel to it that was done recently, came out last year that's really, really good, or a couple years now, I guess it's, it's been out for. So yeah, definitely worth checking out. But a new oh, yeah. question. Why is there a Broadway deal? Well, that just makes it a little bit more horrifying. So, I think we need to get back to the interview. Why don't you uh, just go ahead and say thank you for listening to the show to the people. Thank you for, thank you for listening to the show. Goodbye. <laughs> Bye. Enjoy the rest of the show. This actually has, you know, a proper cast and you have proper filmmakers behind it and everybody that's here. It's just such an unusual thing to see something like this getting this kind of attention. And I think the way the reaction from audiences shows that there's an appetite for this. And I'm hoping that we get more films like this because. Yeah. I mean, it's a miracle that it got the wide release and that the studio was excited about it and wanted to get behind this movie. And I don't know. And, And they were so supportive in the process. New Regency, all the executives were like just down with whatever we were doing. I didn't really feel any pushback from them. And um, nice to have them on set. And I, I've just heard horror stories of studios being difficult and, uh, you know, is it too dark? Is it whatever? How is it working? I don't know. But, um, and, and it seems like that was Zach's experience with them in post as well. And I just so grateful that, uh, I got to have an, an easy and, and pleasant experience with, with our producers. So. And is that, are is that what attracts you to, I mean, a story like this obviously doesn't come around very often. So yeah. is that kind of the thing that if you, you see something, you think, okay, I have a particular skill set that I can bring to this. There's things that I'm seeing right now. And I, I need to be the one that telling the story that I'm using, that I'm going to capture these images. Cause I feel like I have a point of view on this material, or do you see things that you are attracted to? And it might be a challenge or you might not feel like you're the right person for it. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's nice to have a personal connection to something so that it it does feel like something I can, uh, I definitely, it has to be something I can stand behind for sure. It doesn't have to necessarily be something that is like my story because I'm here to tell somebody else's story. Sure. And, and that's why I'm a DP and not a director and or a writer. And like, I really love taking somebody else's idea and making the most of it and uh, improving upon it and, and all that. But uh, for me, it's like, I have to enjoy the script, want to see the movie, feel like it's, original in some way like uh, i've read a lot of really good scripts that are movies i feel like i've seen before um and that's kind of a turnoff it's like i want to you know uh, invent something and and do something that i haven't haven't seen before and then of course it's about the collaboration with the director and and the vibe that uh that i experienced hitting it off with them or not right out of the gate and uh, in my first meeting with Zach, I was like, oh, this guy's great. He knows what he's doing. He's got the right head on his shoulders. He's um, got kind of the right amount of experience. This is his first uh, first movie, but it's like he's um, just a smart guy, you know, and and I and he had something to say and <clears throat> and a clear vision that like I, it didn't sometimes it feels like a director might be leaning on me too hard to like provide a visual idea. But Zach had a lot of really great visual ideas and I uh, was uh, really insistent upon like it should be this way and uh and he was consistent about that 
and he was also really great at listening. He was uh, such a good collaborator and like it, it was always a back and forth. We had so much productive debate in the shot listing process um, where, you know, we'd encounter a scene and I'd be like, oh, we got to do it this way. And he'd be like, no, like we have to do it. It's got to be this way. Or like, we have to have this shot in there. And we went back and forth on so many things and it never felt like we were personally attacking each other. It was always like just a, just let's just make the best thing we possibly can. And I feel like the movie is truly half of you know, the shots are half of each of us. Um, and it, it feels good to to see that in the final product as well. Oh, that's wonderful. Cause that, that's something that I'm always surprised when there's directors that have a very specific vision and they do not want to deviate. They don't want to collaborate at that point. I mean, they're a DP, so they really just need a camera assist. They don't, they are wanting to be that role. So I'm surprised they don't just take on that role at that point because and it seems like that you would have somebody that's kind of going to bring different ideas to the table and then the best idea wins and when you're the director as you were saying before you get the credit for it doesn't matter what happens so you get the credit or you get the failure behind it and that's what i i love about the job of dp is there's you can kind of float from these different projects and develop a style that or a fingerprint that people know you for in the industry but it's something that i think is somewhat invisible to the audience where with few exceptions, I, even with somebody like Deacons, I don't think that people in the general mainstream audience are going to see a movie because he's shooting it. It's just it's just not the case. They might know a director, a handful of them, but really it's still the actors that draw the general audience. And so, but as you, you're one of the most important people in the and the actual final product of a film. But it doesn't rest on your shoulders as far as if shit goes sideways, right, which is right. kind of a nice place to be, I think. Oh, it's a, it's a cozy spot to be for sure. And I can, you know, easily fall back on, well, it's your movie, like whatever, you know, whatever you want to do. Um, but, I, but I try not to do that and try to like, you know, really advocate for what I think is going to be best for the movie. And, and, and I think it's, as long as I feel like I've been heard, then I'm okay letting something go. Um, if I feel like the director doesn't understand what I'm trying to get across with a shot or why I'm pushing for something, then I'll keep pushing it until I feel like, okay, you, you get what I'm saying. You just have a different taste or disagree about it. That's fine. Um, and Zach and I had plenty of those moments. And so, you know, but he, he was right about a lot of it. So <laughs> it's great. And then what is going to be next for you at this point are you gonna do you think it'll work with zach again or I is that yeah yeah we talked okay. to him he's like you're doing my next movie <laughs> whatever it excellent is. good good yeah it's just his first one out of the gate but i'm so enamored with this film that i want to see him get the band back together every summer and kind of i i'm i'm just a greedy <laughs> consumer man i want more of this not this exact yeah. same thing but i just want y'all to be doing stuff together because this is yeah, me too it's it's great to have that sort of loyalty and and collaboration and and feel like you know we've we've spent so much of our time establishing a shorthand and like trying to get to know each other and it's like if we can start not from zero and have uh, <laughs> have, that shot, uh have that like shorthand going into a project that's a huge advantage it would be great save us so oh, much time for sure absolutely well, I congratulations on the film, man, because this is literally one of the best times I've had in a theater in years. I, I, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed this film. There's just um, I'm 46. So the the movies that kind of got me going to the theater that's downtown on the weird side and the, those oddball off pictures that I would see going to repertory houses and things like that when I was a kid, it was 
stuff like this. And I'm so happy to see this um, out there right now. So just congratulations on it, man. Well, I'm, I'm honored. I'm so happy you like it. And it was just as fun to make it and for me to see it in the theater too. It was, it was a blast. It's a lot of fun. Awesome. Well, congratulations, man. And it was a pleasure to speak with you and I uh, hope to get to do it again sometime, man. Thank you. Yeah, it was great talking to you, Chris. Take awesome. Care. Take care, man. Bye-bye. Time enough to figure you out Time enough to write this down Wish me luck, give me hope